Go ahead and turn to First Peter. First Peter, if you will. We're in chapter two. First Peter chapter two. We're going to begin with some prayer. Heavenly Father, we need you as we just sung, God, please do it in our hearts. Lift our eyes to Calvary, that we can behold the beauty of your Son and be enraptured with all of your beauty and all of your glory and all of your might. God, you give us the living word and we place ourselves under it and we ask that you would speak to us and convict us and drive us helplessly crawling to the cross so that we can come to You and make our plea of Christ alone. Through Your Son alone can we come and behold You face to face. Amen. It was nearing the end of 1776 now in General Washington had been on the run ever since General Howe, the English commander, had landed his troops in New York, the state of New York, and he had driven the American troops, and they have had defeat after defeat after defeat. And Washington's armies is across the Delaware, and he comes up with this dastardly plan. Everybody else has taken the winter off. It's war. They're regathering their troops and their supplies and they're coming up with plans for to fight again in the spring. What if we gathered up as many boats as we could find, we crossed the Delaware, and we'll catch it? And that's exactly what they did. They waited till the sun went down on Christmas Eve. They crossed the Delaware when there was little light. And they came and they found these soldiers who were in the midst of a war, they came and found these soldiers completely unprepared. They only lost five American soldiers and they they captured over a thousand and had then enough supplies and munitions and everything else to carry them and that regiment through the upcoming spring. These soldiers were in the midst of the... Well, they were German mercenaries, so they were half-drunk soldiers. But they were in the midst of a war, and they were entirely unprepared. They They were hardly sober. They were entirely unprepared, even though they were in the midst of a battle. And for us, many of us Christians, this is how we lead our lives. We know that we are in a war. We know that we are in a spiritual war. We know that there is a serpent, the lion out there, prowling around, seeking to devour us. But we settle in, and we relax, and we presume everything's going to be okay. This is what Peter is confronting. In our text here. Let's let's read our text here. It's just two verses. 
Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they see, when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the main idea where we're going to be driving home is that you should, you must wage war on your sin. Wage war on your sin. You know it's going to come and attack you. Engage the enemy. Wage war on your sin. Verse 11, the first reason we do it. Why? For the sake of your own soul. For the sake of your own soul. The most selfish thing you can do, fight sin. Culture and everybody else is going to tell you, just blow along with it. No, fight sin. That's the most selfish thing you can do. You can redeem your soul through it. And if that's not enough, verse 12, going down one, for the sake of God's glory, fight your sin for the sake of God's glory. So do a little recap here before we hit the text. What's Peter doing? Well, he's writing to this church that's, that's been scattered and they're, they're in the midst of persecution. Remember, they're, they're Jews and they're Gentiles and the Jewish people, they've always known where they're separate from the world, so that's not a problem. But these, these Gentiles are wrestling with, okay, I'm, I have this boss and everything was fine and now I'm a Christian and now I'm fired and I have nothing. How do I live? Who do I turn to? And so Peter's calling them to, to live in this time, at this present moment, as if the heavens and the earth are coming and invading, which they are. So an example of that is that we live out the conduct of God, that we are going to be holy as God is holy. That is how we live our lives. And he goes on, and Peter encourages them to put aside all malice, deceit, envy, and slander. Because you, you, do you not know that you should be longing, longing for the spiritual milk, Peter tells me. Be longing for the spiritual milk because, as Adam was preaching on, you are being built into a holy temple. You think you're just suffering, but that's God cutting the stones so you can fit perfectly into this glorious temple that God is building. So then, you have a new identity. In these, in these, just right above these, in these verses right above here. You have a new identity. You're no longer forsaken, but you are the chosen race. You're no longer the dregs of society, but no, you're a royal priesthood. You're no longer lacking a purpose, but rather, you are holy. That means you are consecrated and devoted. But thankfully, you are no longer your own, but you are now God's possession. So through Christ, we have a new identity. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. And once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
And your new identity, this is where Peter's going, your new identity, it changes every way that you live. So you get married and you have a new identity. It changes the way you live. Because you're not just representing yourself, you're representing you and your spouse. Not only that, you get married, but then you have children. And this new identity, it changes your conduct as well. You sleep a lot less and you clean much more than you ever thought you would before. But your, your new identity gives you a new conduct as well. So in the same way, Peter is urging them, calling them, in light of your new identity, live a new course, live a new way in this world. So he tells them, verse 11, Beloved, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. We fight sin for the sake of our own souls here. And you see how he begins. And you see Peter's heart in here. It's just pouring out. He is an apostle. You see how his intro says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He could have commanded them, but you know, he comes alongside them and he says, Beloved. Beloved. And he's urging them. And he pleads with them for the sake of their own souls. Their new identity is that they are also sojourners and exiles. Everything is different. Not only their conduct, but how do they relate to this world is entirely different. Before they were Christians, they were alienated from God and they felt quite comfortable in the world. Not a problem. I can swim in these waters. Now, they're Christians. They're commuting with God, but now they're alienated from the world. Everything's been turned upside down. So this is part of their new identity is not only what you do, but how who they are and how they react with this, interact with this world around them. And, and it's deceptive in a way how Satan will lie to us. Because this the world, the pre-Christian, this is this is comfortable for. This is, this is all we know. And we presume, since this is all we know, that this is our true identity. But Peter's going, no, no, no. Everything's been flipped. You're communing with God, so now you are now a sojourner and stranger, an exile here in this world. And this has been the mark of God's people. Adam and Eve sin, and they are exiled out of the garden. And they head east. Abraham is called... He's leaving uh, the land of Ur. And it says, by faith he lived as an alien, that is, a stranger and exile, lived as an exile in the land of promise. There were strangers and exiles on the earth, the author of Hebrews is writing in chapter 11. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, the old man, you could say, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Sojourners and strangers leaving everything they know and now going on to this new life. You see, Joseph and the 70 are exiled out of this land that was promised to Abraham. And they go down to Egypt. And then Moses, 
Ironically, they're exiled out of the land of exile. Are they not? Sojourners and strangers wandering for 40 years. And then finally, Israel themselves rebelling against God, no longer living as aliens and sojourners and strangers in this world, but going back to the old man, going back to this idolatry. And God exiles them again to the east, replaying, they're going to Babylon, they're replaying Genesis 3 through 11. Is Israel going back to Babylon? Christ himself has come to redeem us as a sojourner and a stranger, leaving the heavenly throne room of God. This is what he gave up. And he came into his own creation. You see in John 1, even though his own creation rejected him, he comes into his own creation and lives the life of a sojourner and a stranger and an exile. Peter's telling us and telling you that this is your identity as well. If you don't feel comfortable in this world, if you feel out of place, good. You're well on your way. You're well on your way. It's your identity. It has nothing to do with this world. Nothing to do whatsoever. And Peter, he's going on. He he urges them, does he not, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. As far as from the east is from the west, he's encouraging them to abstain from all that they know. And look, see how they're described. Peter's calling them, they're not just whimsical desires. Fleeting thoughts? Rather, they are the passions of your flesh. And how they're presented to us and what they actually are are two entirely different things. And this is the great lie. This is the great temptation. Satan will be useless. It's as if, again, we're in the garden constantly with these two trees. What shall I choose? And Satan will hold before us this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Say, look, it's it's pleasing to the eyes. Just go ahead. Have a little taste. Surely God could overlook some, some small infraction. Indeed, He is love, is He not? And it's as if this sin just so easily entangles us. And you think it'll be delightful, don't you? But the flash, the passions of your of your flesh they are deceitful and they deceive us. It's, if only you can pull back the curtain and see what's really going on. You think it's this, but it's actually this. You think it's just eating a little bit of the fruit, but you see, oh no, I'm going to be exiled forever and my children and their children are going to grow up not knowing God. Or we could think, oh, just go ahead and click on that link. It's no big deal. You could see behind the curtain, oh no, that will devastate your fiancé. It will kill the soul of your spouse. We don't see the whole picture. We're deceived constantly. Or go ahead. Flirt back with them. Your children, they would love to be raised with four different parents in three different homes. Go ahead. Do you not realize what's happening? Your passions of your own, your own flesh is waging war against your soul. And we miss it. And we think it's nothing. And we play along. 
because we don't see the full picture of what is happening. That's why we must never be passive. We must always be on guard and always engage, willing and actively killing the sin within our own souls. Don't be like the, the troops, the drunk mercenaries that Washington came across. The whole tide of the war was changed. They were ready to give up at that point. But no, they fought on. So fight back and wage war for the sake of your own souls. How do you do it? Number one, obvious. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. He is the one who was tempted in every way that we are, that you are, but He is without sin. Adam and Eve, they failed. Israel, they failed in their temptation. But Christ, empowered by the same Spirit, if you're in Christ, that is dwelling in you. Christ overcame this sin, this Satan's temptation. Forty days, you must be quite hungry. No, 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 no. The Word says, man must not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the, the mouth of God. Or just go ahead. Throw yourself off this gym. The angels, they'll, they'll come and save you. You don't have to die on the cross. People will see that. They'll follow you. You don't have to die on the cross. Oh, no, no. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Oh, just worship me. Let's cut right to the chase. Worship me. All that you see before you is yours. No, no, no. It is written. It is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him alone shall you serve. There's great solace, my friends, in communing with the One, communing with Christ, who has come over, overcome every temptation that you succumb to. Look to Christ and commune with Him, even in the depths of your sin. That's the perfect time to look to Christ and embrace Him. Is the darkness is shrouding in around you and you want to turn into yourself more and more and more and throw yourself away? No, look to Christ in the depths of your sin. That is when you look to Christ. Secondly, we already mentioned it quite a bit, but realize you are in a battle. Satan, he doesn't need to destroy you, quite frankly, if you're just disengaged. If you put it in neutral, you coast along, you've already lost. And it's... Perhaps it's our comfort in this time that we have that we think that there's no need for the battle. And we're, we're simply too busy, maybe, with work or kids or... Updating your status, this all-important status that must be updated currently. And we're like beautiful gardens that little by little by little are becoming overgrown and soon all semblance of life and beauty is choked out. Engage and fight. Kill your sin for the sake of your own soul. Moving on. Verse 12, let's read it. You're going to see that we should kill sin and fight for the sake of God's glory. Let's go to the text here. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that 
When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And now we hear Peter, is, he's firing the same gun, but just a little bit of a, a different direction here. At first you see that it's, it's, what's fascinating is the words that he uses. Keep your conducts amongst the Gentiles honorable. Now there, there's two words he could have used. So it's not so much that he, there's, there's one word that, agathos, it just means good. It's inherently good. But that's not what he uses. No, no, he uses the word cause, which is like good and beautiful. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles beautiful. It's the same word in Genesis 1. God saw all that He made, and it was good. It was beautiful. This is to be our conduct amongst the Gentiles. And even the most, the most caustic person. You can, can look at something like Pieta or, or uh, wander among the, above the sea fog, and he'd be enraptured with the beauty of it. In the same ways, the, your beautiful deeds, even those who are caustic and dead in their own sins, they can see that and they will glorify God. So in the same way, Peter is he's calling you to a life of a Christian life in which your deeds are beautiful. Again, it's not this binary right or wrong, but it's keeping your eyes fixed upon Christ and emulating Him in this present situation. So it's not just pushing out the darkness and painting the walls flat white and calling it good, but no. Your life is a, 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 a canvas on which your beautiful deeds are bringing glory to God. And it isn't easy, I, I know, because we fall prey to so many things. But God's glory is displayed in, in so many things. You see it in creation, His, His glory is displayed. The, the dancing of the stars, the whispering of the trees, God coming down on Mount Sinai and shaking the whole mountain. His glory is displayed in so many ways. God's glory is also displayed through your beautiful conduct. Not just good, not just right and wrong. No, 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 no. Beautiful. That is to be your conduct. He is glorified that you, a piece of dirt, would come alive and turn from your sins and adore Him and worship Him and live out His holiness in this present age of darkness that is surrounding us. God is glorified in that. Crucify. Crucify your sins to display your own glory, your God's glory. And you see that God's using these beautiful deeds also for the salvation of other people. Here it says, um, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, call us beautiful, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's as if Peter was sitting there during the Sermon on the Mount when, when Jesus is, is, is saying, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good, beautiful they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
And this is precisely the life that Peter is calling us to live in the midst of this darkness. In the midst of this, you have these beautiful deeds and they're being accused of being evil. The, the very opposite of what's happening. And Peter's not ignorant of the situation, of what's going on. They're, they're being accused of the very, being the very opposite of what they are. But Peter knows that this is happening in the midst of them persecuting you, pressing in against you, surrounding you. When they're up and close like that, they see your good, beautiful deeds. It's often the setting of suffering that God's glory is displayed and others will see it and turn from their sins and come and behold the grace of God. Basil of Caesarea writes a sermon recording what had happened in the year 320. Maybe he was alive when this happened. There were 40 men, soldiers, you were going to be a Roman soldier, you offered to the emperor, at that time Licinius. And out of three or thousand some soldiers, there were 40 men who refused to make just, just a small offering. It's nothing, right? Just take a little pinch of the incense, throw it in the fire, say some, obliqu- ob, you know, some words, and then you're good. You can go on. But these obstinate Christians, they just won't do it. Just make the sacrifice. No, we can't. We, we, we just worship the Lord alone. Okay, worship the Lord, but just, I don't want to, just make the sacrifice. No, we can't. We can't. The general becomes impatient. Lysias, commander of the, the 12th regiment, becomes very impatient with him. Has him flogged and beaten. Okay, now make the offering. Make the sacrifice. Just throw a little incense in. I can check my box and we'll be on our way. No. They refused. They weren't going to succumb to the temptation that was before them. And he's standing out there and he feels the cold breeze blowing against his face. And he has this harrowing idea. Strip them naked. Put them out in the middle of the frozen lake. They can freeze or they can sacrifice. Someone's going to be sacrificed. Them or they can make the sacrifice to the seeds. There, those 40 Christians stripped naked after they were beaten and flogged and whipped and put out on this frozen lake. And then he draws up warm baths and puts them surrounding the lake. And he calls out to the men, just come, come, take a warm bath. Come, take a warm bath. And one of them does. But a soldier whose name must be spoken, Augaius, he sees them out there. He sees their beautiful deeds. He sees the 39 out there singing and praying as they're freezing to death. And he strips down naked and he says, I too am now a Christian. And he runs out there. 
and he lays at the feet of Christ his crown. Beloved, your beautiful deeds speak much more than you will ever know. Proclaim the glory of God with your life. Who's to know if you are the means of salvation for your enemy? You will never know. So what do we do? Again, keep your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Realize that you are in the midst of a war. Don't let our our prosperity entice you into thinking otherwise. And this is this is how Satan does it. He doesn't drag us into into hell, kicking and screaming. No, he just he just puts something before you. Oh, a little comfort. Oh, a little desire, a little passion of the flesh. And willingly we go marching right into hell. No one goes in kicking and screaming. Realize that there is a war raging for your soul. And you have the Spirit within you. Finally, what do we do? We kill sin. We have these beautiful deeds. Because every aspect of your life must be oriented to the glory of God. We are zealous for these good deeds. Not for our own sake. No. Save your own soul. Good. That's a good starting point. But no, no. Go much further than that. Every aspect of your life, even how you conduct yourself in the midst of your enemies, is to the glory of God that they too might glorify God on the day of visitation. Who knows if they will be among the multitudes that is singing the praises and the honor and the glory as Algaius is now singing forever and ever. Let us pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we, we have nothing. We have absolutely nothing. And what we do have, these, this flesh of ours that wages war against the soul that you have given us, God, do not let us succumb. Let us engage in the battle. Let us as a church encourage one another and come around each other and fight this battle not in isolation but with each other. And God, let us always keep our eyes fixed upon Calvary. And your Son and His beauty and let everything we do be for your glory. Amen.